Good morning. It's good to be up here today. You know, one of the things I've kind of been thinking of, uh, I'm going down to visit my fiance this week, and we have engagement pictures. And I've been thinking about seeing, you know, some of the people that I went to school with. I only graduated in May. So, you know, many of the people I went to school with are still going to be at school, and I'll likely possibly see some of my professors. And I was just thinking about how grateful I am to be able to be in this job and be able to work here. Um, it's a, such an honor, and I'm grateful to get to do it. So I hope this lesson today will be beneficial to you. And, you know, I've enjoyed presenting many lessons, and I try to take some breaks in between some of the ones that I think are more somber and a little bit sadder, because Christianity is such a joyous religion, and you don't need to be doom and gloom the whole time, because that's not what it's about, right? It's about Christ resurrected and the power he shows. But there are times that we need to be serious, and when we've been talking about this heart trouble in this series that we're in, we talked before about being heartbroken, and further along the road, we get to a point in that way as we get there where we have sinned, and I want to talk about today something I think from young to old people understand, and that is lying. I mean, even in our culture today, right, we, we even have little categories, right? You got like a small little lie, and then you got like a big lie. Like, what, what's the difference? They're both lying, but like we even have tried to justify in our culture the different things about that. And not just talking about, you know, lying that your brother broke your grandmother's vase, but talking more about the lies that you tell yourself and the lies that people live, the lies that we sometimes live. And so we're going to talk about the lies that we tell. And we're going to study today in Acts chapter 5. We're going to look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And we're going to see that there's a start to what occurs that goes on for them. And in that, there is an act that they happen. For them, it's just one thing. And afterwards, there's the end of the matter that comes from this. And through this, hopefully we can gain a better understanding and learn more and see that lying isn't just done with words, but it's done with much more than that. So we're going to start in verse 1, chapter 5 in Acts. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so we see here first that we have a plan, and hopefully you're all familiar with kind of this, right? Whether it's a TV show or a movie or a book, right? Before a crime or some act is committed, everyone, you know, gets together and they conspire and have this plan for some end goal. Usually it's about money or some kind of opportunity, but the people come together and they, they have this, you know, well thought out plan of how they're going to achieve their end goal. And for Ananias and Sapphira, Ananias says, you know, how about we go and sell this property and we give the money at their feet and claim that we are selling all of it. As we will see in the passage, they really didn't sell it for the price that they give to the apostles. They kept it back for themselves. But when you think about what's going on in the text, it makes a little bit more sense when you look at Acts chapter 4 and the ending there. And there's a man named Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus. And if you're looking at the passage, you might remember him 
because he's known as a different name. You probably know him as Barnabas, but the son of encouragement, as this name means. And he's given that because of what he was doing. Yet, others in the church were still giving, but it was those who were wealthy, right? Those who had need. It's not like somebody who lived on a property, they just gave up the house and the land that they were living on to those in need. So you're left to wonder, in some form or fashion, they wanted to seem holier than they were. Right? Whether it was to get recognition, whether it was to seem better, or in some case, to seem wealthy. Right? You think about this, only the wealthy have the ability to give away more land than they need. Right? You're not, if you're not wealthy, if you're poor, you probably don't have much more than the land or the house that you live in. Yet some of these people were selling massive lots to help the needy. And so we see that regardless of what's going on and how they feel and what they want, the plan is simple, that they want to see, to to be shown as faithful followers of God, even though they were not. And I think of the words of James in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Jesus' brother, when he says, but each person is tempted when he is lured by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So we see the desire that they had, right? It was to be seen as good people, faithful people. And, you know, the desire to be a righteous person isn't a bad one, right? We, we should all want to be good. But the, the question is the desire to be good and being seen by people. I mean, we all know Matthew 5.16, right? Do your good works indeed so everyone around you can glorify you. No, that's, that, that's not what Matthew 5.16 says. Right? Matthew 5.16 says, do your good deeds or do your good works to glorify or honor your Father who is in heaven. It's not about being seen by man that we should do things, but to glorify God. And so the question is, what is your motive? What is your motive for being here? What is your motive for living for Christ and following him? And why do you do what you do about every little thing? from the smallest to the biggest. What is your motive behind this? What do you desire? Do you desire just to feel good inside about the end of salvation? Do you desire for people to think you're righteous or more righteous than you are? Or is it that you desire to do his will? Because I hope at some, in some fashion we're as close as we can be to the last one. I know, I know we're not perfect. I know that we make mistakes and we fail. But as much as we can, we need to strive to be wanting to do his will. And if we think that we can't fall, that we can't sin and be put away from God, then we are also lying to ourselves. Because God has given us the opportunity through his son, but we have to serve him and live for him. But the problem arises even before they had the act of lying, and it starts with some sort of lie in themselves. Maybe it was a fact that they lied to themselves and tricked themselves into thinking it's okay to be doing good works to be seen by people, right? We're still doing good works. We're still being good people. That's, that's good, right? We're, we're trying to do good, but we also, you know, we want to look better. We want people to know that we're wealthy. Or maybe it was the lie of 
The fact that they could get what they wanted quicker and easier just by sinning. And I think that's more so where we are today and what we can relate to when we think about life and what we're doing. And we have this question in our mind, you know, how do I get to where I want to be? Sadly, most of the time, the quickest and easiest way is to sin, especially in the world today. And we can lie to ourselves by thinking that's a good idea, but also lie to ourselves that living in sin and living a sinful life is something that is good for us, because it's not. I know too many people today that have convinced themselves that it's worth the momentary happiness of this life, the happiness of self, to live a sinful life, and to do so because they got to make it worth it in the time that they have on this earth. But another lie that is told to us from Satan in the world is that you can't really be happy as a Christian. That real happiness is doing whatever you truly want to do. You don't need to be some grump who's sad and just sits inside and doesn't associate with people. No, I'm not talking about like being a monk and being kept away from everybody. But Christianity, you can still have so much joy and so much happiness, but you have to give up some things, right? You have to concede your desires that will lead to sin. And you have to be willing to live a life for him instead of us. We cannot let Satan con ourselves into thinking that we do not need God and we do not need to live faithfully for him. But next comes the act, and we start with Ananias here in verse 3. But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your own disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. So we see first Ananias' lie. And what I really find interesting is Ananias doesn't talk once in this whole text. Now, part of that is definitely because after the words were spoken to him, he died. So there was a pretty you know, quick exchange of when he heard them and when he passed. But I think there's some emphasis in the text here. Right? Ananias lied without even saying a word in the text. Now, obviously, there, there had to be some kind of discourse like between his wife or something like that. But I think it really shows on his actions. I know we're all familiar you know, with the phrase of, you know, technically I didn't lie. You know, you said not to do this, but technically, we, we know about those technicalities. I mean, as a kid, I tried to do that. You know, I didn't get anywhere with it. But I think in, a, in the digital age today, so often we can hide behind words that don't seem real because we're not speaking them or don't really mean what they're supposed to do. Like, technically, they mean what they say, but in reality... You know, it's not really there. And too often, right, our words cover up awful actions, right? We lie and we try to say, say things to cover up the wrongdoings that we've done, to hide the mistakes that we've made. And while words can be fabricated, actions are more telling, 
Right? How you act is how you act. Now, maybe we perceive it in a certain manner, but in general, our actions show. And usually, these actions are done for self-preservation. Right? You don't want a, your grandmother to know you're the one who broke the vase. You don't want to get in trouble for something. But even in Jesus' time, we had people that were putting themselves first, just like they are today. But the question is, with that, we've all messed up, right? We've all had issues that haunt us, things that we're, we feel guilty about. But as we've talked about, God forgets our sins, they're cleansed away through Christ, and instead of letting the past haunt you, let your mistakes fuel you and inspire you to do better in the future, to be a better Christian, to be a better person in life. And the question is, what are we going to do? Are we going to choose to act in ways that are selfish, that cause us to lie? Or are we going to strive to imitate Christ? Because if I think about it, people might say Christianity isn't a religion where you're happy, but I don't think anyone can say that living a life like Christ would be anything but right and anything but joyful. But the second is that Ananias was lying against God. And I remember some of the Bible bowls and different trivia stuff that we did when I was younger. And there was always this one question, and it was, can God do anything? And well, everybody first, everyone's like, well, yeah, God, God can do anything. God's God. And then the teacher or the supervisor would quote Titus 1-2 and mention that God doesn't lie. And I didn't really understand much at the time. No one really explained it to me. I really think the time in which I learned and studied deeply God's nature in college was a good time for me to absorb that. And while a study of God's nature in its entirety is definitely for some other time, and, but understanding a little bit about what's going on here lets you see into the inside of the situation. See, God is truth. God is light and God is love. These are all part of his essence, if you will, who he is as a being, his very nature. And so when it comes down to it, just a rough understanding of what's going on, Ananias tried to lie to the one who does not lie, the one who never lies. Ananias tried to lie to him. I could not think of an example. I spent many minutes trying to think of a good example to come up to try to relate this, but I just couldn't. Nothing could come to the magnitude of it of how foolish that is for Ananias to try to do. You think of God and who he is. His very nature is the opposite of falsehoods, the opposite of lies. And yet Ananias came up with the idea to try to lie to him. It doesn't make sense. It's such a bad idea, yet he thought that was a good idea. God can't be tricked like us. I mean, if we're honest... Some of us are more gullible than others, but it all doesn't take much to convince us. I mean, there are some mixers, you know, get-to-know games that people play, and one of them is called Two Truths and a Lie. The goal of this game is to try to trick people, to try to get them to think that your lie is true and that your truths are lies. And just that game alone just shows us how easily we can be manipulated and tricked. But God isn't like that. 
What do we do when we think about lying to God? And it's not just about saying, God, I didn't do this, but living a life that is a lie to God. As we talked about weeks ago, living an inside-out Christianity and not being a hypocrite. How do we feel when we think about lying to the one who does not lie? Living your life like nothing's wrong when you live in sin? Because as we see for Ananias, this is where it got him, dead. And yes, Ananias is one of the handful of instances in the New Testament where God struck somebody down. He paid the ultimate price for his vain glory. And death is something you know, that has much to unpack and talk about for us. And understanding our own mortality is good for realistic living and understanding how we want to live. But we're not going to be struck down by God this week. Hope not. But it's for us, when we depart this life, if sin is still on us, we have not been washed clean by Christ's blood, then we will have the spiritual death, the second death that is talked about in Scripture. But on this note, I want to talk about something that I think is not talked about enough. And it's happened since the dawn of time. Since people had other religions, people have always questioned, right, if whether it was in Egypt, whether it was Greece or Rome, all these different civilizations that had these religions, if something bad happened, whose fault was it? Well, it was the gods because they were mad at you. And even in Judaism, they had this same idea. If you look at John chapter 9, in the time when Jesus' disciples, they come to him, and they're talking about this blind man, and they say, the rabbi, who sinned, him or his parents? The question there is that somebody did something wrong, so this man is blind. When bad things happened, so often do we look, and I doubt there were always... I know there will always be an instance when something bad happens that we question, at least for a moment, why me? Why is this happening? I know of a man who went to a cancer appointment with his wife to see if she had breast cancer, and they told her she did. And while he was obviously distraught about this, he has three children, she looked him in the eyes and she said, regardless of what happens, we're going to trust in God and we're going to glorify him and we're going to show everybody what it means to be a Christian she wasn't afraid. She was confident in her Lord, whatever what would happen. But Jesus says in the next verse in John 9, 3, that it wasn't because somebody sinned that God did this, because God didn't do this to him, but that God was going to use it for his glory. But then again, you might say, Ben, are you, are you trying to say that God lets people have issues, has cancer, have things? Does God does those things for his glory, for his own benefit? That seems vain, but that's not what's happening. We were designed very well as humans, but our bodies, our bodies were not designed to last forever. And we live in a sinful, fallen world. And the horrors and the unfortunate events that occur to us link to those two things. Either it's due to sin or it's part of being human. And sometimes that really sucks. But... It doesn't mean God doesn't love us, and it doesn't mean God isn't there for us, and it doesn't mean that we can't look to him in our times of doubt. But knowing that these things are coming, if you haven't had such things yet, you need to be prepared. You need to prepare your heart, because Ananias didn't, as we will see. 
He was not ready for what was going on because as the text says, Satan filled his heart and in his heart he contrived against God. His heart was taken over and filled up by sin, by greed. He wasn't prepared. But we need to be prepared to combat the doubts, to combat the lies that God is going against us, that he is doing this because he does not love us. But to always trust in him and his promises. To continue on in verse 7 with Sapphira. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And I know we can go through part of the things, but I want to start with not repeating exactly what has happened to Ananias, but start with Sapphira's lie. And this is important to note, I think, because you have to remember where she started just a couple verses earlier, right? The text says that he decided to do this, and he went with her knowledge. So she knew exactly what her husband was doing. She knew what he was going to do. And you might be thinking, whoa, I know, I, I interact with people. You know, I know people that are are sinful. What, what does that mean for me? Well, at least for Sapphira, she should have spoken up. Obviously, at least for her, she didn't find any problem with what her husband did or else she would have said something. Most likely, you know. But she didn't voice any concerns. She didn't voice any problems. I mean, like, hey, you probably shouldn't go lie about this. Seems like it was a good deal for the both of them, right? They were both going to benefit if it worked out. And yet, what happened was Ananias' sins and choices impacted his wife. And we live in a world today where people are trying to convince everyone that you do what you want to do, and that's all that matters. I don't know of any single thing, really, that you could do that doesn't affect another person around you. If you don't pay attention when you're driving, what's going to happen? You're going to hit something or someone. If, if you don't do anything of the things, like go to work, right? If you don't go to work, you're not going to get paid. And if you don't get paid, how are you supposed to pay for your house, pay for your car, insurance, so on and so forth, right? Decisions that you make impact more than just you, even if people try to convince you otherwise. And so while Sapphira was an onlooker and was able to, you know, stand there while her husband did that with the knowledge of it. Because of what her husband did, she was drawn in down the same dark path that he went down. And from it, she was led to lie to God as well. And she paid the same cost that he did. Too often, I think we forget about how our sins affect others instead of just affecting us. I hope and pray that none of us desire for our loved ones to fall away. But if we choose to condone sin, to commit sin and live a sinful life, it will affect those around us. I know of people that have fallen away who have left the church because they couldn't handle the thought of their child 
or a grandchild committing sin and going to hell for what they were doing. So their sins led even more people away. Our sins hurt the people around us. And we need to understand that. Ananias took his wife down with him. But they both had an opportunity, a chance to get out of it. It wasn't, she wasn't doomed just because she was married to him or just because she saw these things. But rather, she had a choice. And so did Ananias. They were given clear opportunities by Peter to get out, right? They had the opportunities to admit that they were lying, to admit that they were wrong, but they chose to go with it. And what for? Some vain pleasure and desire? Peter even mentions how dumb this was. He says, you could have literally just told me this was the money you gave from your property and you would have been fine. Barely any just words of a difference for them. And yet they chose to go along with it for the hope of maybe it would give them something more. I don't know. But for people today, when we're thinking about what's going on in life, I think of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. You know, there has not been a trial that has not overtaken you that has not been faced by others. But with that trial, God will provide a way out. They had opportunities to get out. We will have opportunities too. To show God to other people and to say no to sin. And you might say, well, Ben, it's easier said than done. I think, honestly, it's probably always easier said than done. But it's as simple as saying no. Is it hard at times in the moment to say no? Yes. But it's still the very same word to say. But also we see in this text you know, that they weren't called to give all that they had, right? They wanted to sell this land and to give all the money to, to look good, even though they kept the money back. What's happening here, you know, God isn't calling them at the time, and he isn't calling us to give every single penny of what we have. It's not to be to where you give all your money, you don't have any retirement, you don't have any savings, and you can't pay your bills. That's, that's not what this is about. Right? Those who were financially stable and had the ability to sell their land did to the benefit of the people who needed it. But we're also not, to be, not supposed to be so stingy to where our giving is inconsequential. Because our giving is part of our worship to God, and it's to be with a cheerful heart, and to be intentional that we give it to him because we know we want to help the work of the church, the work of his kingdom. And even with that opportunity, they chose to give it away. But we still have that opportunity until the day we breathe our last breath. That's not saying to live some vain life and at the last minute you turn back. But to understand that the sins that we commit, the issues that we live, and the problems that we have are pushed away and are taken care of because of Christ. But the question comes is what will you do in the end? And ending with verses 11 and 12, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. And now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. I want to talk about the fear that is discussed here because to me it's like eerily similar to what we read in the Old Testament 
you start thinking of passages, hopefully you'll come up with a few. I'll, I'll give you a few here. In number 16, maybe you recall the, what's usually called Korah's Rebellion in the text. Uh, a group of Israelites decided to go against Moses and Aaron and defy him. And the result of this was the earth, as some texts say, the earth like opened up or swallowed up a bunch of people. And then the rest of the people were burned to death. And that struck fear in a lot of people. I mean, you think of just like walking around camp and then there's a hole in the ground and a bunch of people that you're related to just get sucked down into it. That would be very frightening. Or you think about Nadab and Abihu, right? The sons of Aaron who gave improper fire and they were burned to death. I mean, if that doesn't scare you to like try to make sure you're doing proper worship as an Israelite at the time, I think it would. Or, you know, the story of the man who touched the ark when it fell off and he died. Like, so many of these stories, but I also think of Exodus 18, where a similar wording is even used, or 19, sorry, Exodus 19, where God descends on Mount Sinai and there's thunder and lightning and smoke, and it says the whole camp trembled before God because they were afraid. But it seems like fear wasn't always that successful because you also think of the Israelites as the people who continually messed up, who continually turned away from God. Even though that fear gripped Israel so often, they needed something more. And in 1 John 4, 18, we read 1 John 4, 19 last week, the verse that says, He loved because He loved us. The verse before that says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears punishment has not been perfected in love. The fear of God, as the Proverbs writer says, is the beginning of the knowledge. But that's not hopefully where we should stay. As we mature in our faith and we learn more about what God says in his word, as John writes here, we should be perfected in love. That I don't try not to sin because I'm not afraid of hell and afraid of what God will do to me. But I don't sin because of what God has done for me, because of what Christ has done laying on that being hung on that cross for my sins. He loved me so much. God loved me so much to give him his son. And I love God enough that I want to try to live better for him and to serve him. That love is a symbol that has transcended now thousands of years. The cross of showing just how much Christ loved each one of us. Fear is definitely the place to start. But we need to get to the point in our lives where we love what God has done for us. But the question then is, was it worth it? Was it worth it for Ananias and Sapphira? I know we, we can't ask them, right? It would be nice to have like a testimonial afterwards, you know? Was it worth it to lie about your money? But it would be great to hear that from a lot of people in life, in the world, after they pass on. But we don't get to hear those things. And so we're left to wonder. I would assume, you know, just... You know, being living, I wouldn't think it would ever be worth it to do that. But the question is, what is your life worth to you? God has shown what your life is to him. How much it's worth, because he gave his son. His one and only son, he gave for you. That's how much you're worth to God. But the question is, what do you think you're worth? And more so, what is it worth to where you'll spend eternity? 
is the time in this life that the happiness you could gain by living in a sinful life worth that? Or is serving God worth it? Because the last thing that we see here is the judgment and glory of God. God exacts judgment on Ananias and Sapphira in that moment. And like we said, we're not going to you know, have that happen to us this week because God has put in place his time for judgment. At some point, he will judge everyone that has ever existed. But in the judgment that we see in this text, there's still an element of good that we saw in verse 12. And maybe you thought about it, maybe you didn't. But we started this lesson with Ananias laying his lie at the feet of the apostles. And we end this lesson with miraculous signs and wonders done by the hands of the apostles. That they glorified God through what they were doing. Yes, God will judge. And yes, God has judgment. But we can also glorify him through what we have gone through. In the face of sin, in the choice of doing wrong, what will you choose? It all starts with what you desire, right? At the start of the matter, what do we want in our hearts? Do we want to serve ourselves or do we want to serve others? And from there, it is about how you act. And at some point in life, there will be the end and the judgment time question is, where will you be? What side will you be on? And do you want to live a life of lies? Or do you want to follow the one who is and from which truth comes from? I want to end with James 1, 16 and 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Are we going to live up to the word of truth that we were brought forth in, or are we going to succumb to the lies that we want to tell? We have an opportunity, just as Ananias and Sapphira did, and this opportunity is always open for those that need prayers, who need encouragement or repentance. And for those that have not had the opportunity to wash away their sins. If you need anything, let us know. Please just let us know as we come now and stand and sing.